Our scripture reading today is Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 and 50. It's short and sweet. While he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. Well, I'll pray for us, and then we can get started. Father, we're thankful to have the opportunity to gather around your word and hear from you this morning. We ask that you would speak to us through your word and that you would build up your church. Now, we want to be a people unified in purpose, and that sole purpose is to see Christ for who he is, to worship him in, in spirit and truth, and to display his majesty for the world to see. Father, help us to be a worshiping people, to love each other with genuine and grace-motivated affections. God, you are so worthy of our adoration, our efforts, and our desires, and we ask that you would shape us now by the power of your spirit, through your word, into the kind of people who love you above all things and love our neighbors ourselves. And we ask these things for your glory and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's week five of my Romans 12 sermon series. Some of you uh, are coming here today and your, book, your Bibles are already ready for revelation. We interrupt this regular scheduled revelation programming to go back five weeks into Romans 12. So I'm just going to say this right from the get-go. Please forgive me when I say last week. I've already done it in my mind a hundred times today, and I, it might happen. So if I say last week, you will know what I meant is sometime in January I said this. Uh, let's root ourselves into the passage, Romans 12, 1 and 2. That's where we spent four weeks, and that's where we're going to make our conclusion and I'll read it for us just so we're on the same page. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so since it's been... Uh, I think four or five weeks since I've been here, I figured we might spend a little bit of time this morning, not too, too much, but a little bit of time just reviewing where we were. And so week one, the sermon title was Rooted in Mercy, and what we learned is that the Christian life is built on the mercies of God. These mercies are personified to us in Christ, it's applied to us through the Spirit, and we're meant to saturate the roots of our lives into the mercies of God. That's where we started. It starts in mercy, right? So if we're not moved by the mercy of God, we don't move on to the greater things yet. We root ourselves in the mercy of God. We continually expose ourselves to the gospel. Week two was logical worship. We said since we have been uh, so immeasurably blessed by God, since he has showered the mercies of God on us through Christ, the most logical thing for us to do as Christians is then to present ourselves back to him. And we present ourselves back to him not only in body, but in mind and desire and will. And that when we do that, we're acting in the most natural way for a new creation to act. When we are newly created in Christ, our most natural impulse is to worship God who made us anew. And that's when we give him us in return. That was logical worship. Week three was present pilgrims, and we said as new creations, even though we are new creations, we're created by the Spirit, we can actually live lives that please God. That's a good thing. We can actually please God, which is an incredible thing that we learned in week three. The problem is that we live in a present evil age, and this age is characterized by brokenness, sin, 
all manner of evil. And because we are surrounded by it, we're always under the continuing forces and we're squeezed by these things over and over again. And, and it is a temptation to be conformed to the standard of this age instead of being transformed. And so what we said was, ultimately in the life of the believer, we are always conformed to that which we love the most. If we love God more, we're going to seek to be conformed or rather transformed. But if we love this age and we love the things of this world more, the chances are we're going to come to look a lot like this world. We learned as a follow-up to that in week three, that as Christians, we learn to love God by lifting up our gaze from this age and beholding the beauty of Christ and the gospel. And week four was the renewed mind. So rather than conformity to this age, what God would have for us is that our lives should be marked uh, by the Holy Spirit renewing our minds. And so as we gaze on the beauty of Christ in the scriptures, we are transformed Surely and steadily, not in a single moment, but day by day as we expose ourselves to the truth of Jesus, as we expose ourselves to the gospel, we are changed into people who learn to perceive life from God's perspective. Because this is how we learn. We can set our minds on the things of the Spirit, is what Romans chapter 8 tells us. Because of this, because of this renewing of mind, we can actually mind the things of the Spirit. So that's where we... That's where we were as a review. Hopefully that caught you up. Um, if you're new here and you want me to hang out with you for like five hours, I can tell you about these things. Or you can go back online and watch them. That's totally available for you too. Okay, now with that set, we're going to move in to the final part of it, which is Romans chapter 12, verse 2c. We did verse 2a, b, and now we're going to do c. But before we do that, let me just by way of example, um, see if you might not resonate with this story a little bit. Uh, so I've been a father for a little bit of time now. And as a father, I've learned a couple things. One of the first things that I learned is that um, I should really uh, be cautious whenever I hear the word help from one of my kids. Okay? Now, um, you might think, if you don't have kids in here, you might think, well, that's pretty rude. But who wouldn't want to help their kids? Well, here's the deal. Sometimes your kids ask for help, and it's something super sweet. They're like, Dad, can I get your help? And you go downstairs, and they're doing a sweet craft. And they're like making you. And they're like, can you just glue this button eye on my beautiful father? That's how they talk to me. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, wonderful child. I would, I'm glad to help you with this wonderful glue. I will do that. But I've learned also that same tone, that very same, Dad, can I get your help? And you assume it's going to be no big deal. When you get downstairs, you realize pandemonium has broken loose. There's blood on the floor. There's a tooth barely hanging on. They're fighting. Hair is being pulled out. There's like 19 pounds of flour on the floor in the kitchen. Right? I don't know if that's you guys, but that's like a typical Friday in the Bongraff house. We've learned over time, Rochelle and I have learned, when your kids ask you for help, be cautious. So my response isn't always like, yes, kids, I can't wait. My response sometimes is like, maybe, <laughs> depends what it is, right? Anybody else have this experience with kids? I don't know. Maybe I'm just the one. I don't know. Online, you guys hear me? That's good. Anyways, I think sometimes we have this same understanding when it comes to the scriptures and it comes to reading what God's will for our life is. When we come to passages and when we come to uh, what the scripture teaches us about what we are to do as Christians, I think sometimes our gut reaction is, well, that depends. Or, are you sure that's necessary? Or, um, what kind of mess am I gonna be in if I actually respond to these things? See, the, the natural thing and what this passage is going to teach us is that ultimately, I believe, it's a joy for us to obey God. It's a joy for us 
to desire what he desires for us. That's, that's what should happen in the life of a believer. But far too often, I encounter believers and I talk to people and counsel people who when it comes to actually applying what God asks them to do, there's a pause and there's a hesitation. And the, the hesitation is like, that might just be too hard. Or I'm not sure that that teaching is something that I can do at this point in my life. And so what I'd like to do for us today is spend a little bit of time uh, looking at what Paul argues and why he argues the way that he argues today. And I think it will ultimately lift a little bit of that burden for us. That's my hope. That's my goal. My goal is that we become believers, you and I become believers, become the kind of people that joyfully find out the will of God and then are eager to put it into practice. I mean, is there any person in here right now that if I could tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, you could do God's will today? Would there be any believer that would not jump at the chance to do that? The fact is you're here. So that probably leads me to believe that you're at a place where you would say, yeah, Adam, I want to do God's will for my life. And if I knew what it was, I would do it. That's awesome. And I think that that's a great, that's a great goal. And I, and, I, and I believe you. But I think far too often we say those things, and yet we come to the scriptures, and we see things that are difficult, and we say, I'm not so sure. Right? And so in our flesh, we're never going to be able to get over that obstacle, but with the Spirit of God, we can. And that's, I think, what Paul argues So, let's move to the text. We come to the conclusion of our series in Romans 12, and this week we focus on the purpose of the transformed mind. If you look at the way that the verse is broken down, this part, the the, uh, that by, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, that's the purpose statement of the renewed mind. So Paul is saying, Why do you have a renewed mind or what is the purpose of having a renewed mind? What is the purpose of being transformed by the Spirit of God? This is his purpose statement. This is why it's there. What he argues is that the transformed mind produces a transformed will. That's the goal and that's what I hope to argue, that the transformed mind produces a transformed will. So by the time we get to the end of this passage and ultimately the end of this series, Paul will have told us what is, in fact, included in biblical worship. The kind of worship that God is pleased with is the kind of worship that flows from the mind, body, and will working in conjunction with one another, all empowered by the Spirit, informed by the gospel. That's biblical worship. We can't just offer our bodies without our minds. We can't just offer our thoughts, our words without actions. We can't just will something and then not follow it up with thoughts. That's not biblical worship. We have to want what God wants. And what God wants, what God wants, what he proved to us by sending his son to rescue us and redeem us from sin What he proved to us by giving us the ability to live in a way that pleases him is that he wants us. So worshiping God isn't done only in words and actions. Worshiping God is us, submitted, yielded, transformed, loving us. Biblical worship is us. Now, does it include your mind? Yes. Does it include your will? Yes. Does it include your actions? Yes. But you can never divorce those from giving who you are to God. Biblical worship always includes you. So we don't come to the scriptures and read a command and say, I'll just do the command, therefore God will love me. No. God loved us. We give ourselves back in response joyfully, knowing that we had no merit to stand on on our own, knowing that he justified us freely by his grace. And so we love him and we respond back. That's biblical worship. So what I want to do today is give you my premise, give you the premise, and then argue that on through three different phrases. And the three phrases are that by testing you may discern, what is the will of God, and third, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So I'm going to state the main idea for you a couple times for those of you who take notes. And here it is. A transformed mind produces a transformed will, which through the power 
and ongoing help of the Holy Spirit enables us to discover and prefer the revealed will of God over our own desires. I'm going to say that again for you. That's a real mouthful. My homiletics teacher would be so mad at me right now. You're supposed to say it like in one sentence. And that's a sentence, but it's pretty long. So here it goes. A transformed mind produces a transformed will, which through the power and ongoing help of the Holy Spirit enables us to discover and prefer the revealed will of God over our own desires. That's the main idea. So let's look at the first phrase. That by testing you may discern. The first two words, that by. The that by support the previous part of the sentence, which is be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you remember in week four, yes, I didn't say last week, I'm winning. You remember in week four, I said that the transformed mind and the renewal only comes through the spirit of God. We don't transform our minds on our own. The Spirit of God transforms our mind, but the way that he does that is through the content of the gospel. So as we continually saturate our lives in the gospel, as we read the word, as we come to church and hear it preached, as we live in community and we see the gospel bear out, as we read it, as we meditate on it, as we think about who Jesus is, as we do that, the Spirit uses that as the very means with which to transform our minds. So we become renewed in mind, we become transformed people through the gospel. And this is all a work of the Spirit. So I'm going to move into this, this other part about doing things, doing the will of God, but it's not divorced from the power and the role of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so I didn't preach all about the Holy Spirit in week four, only to come in now and say, here's how you do things. Do it on your own energy. So hear me correctly. You couldn't do God's will on your own. It wouldn't be possible for you to do it. You would never prefer it, first of all. And second, you would never actually be able to complete it. It has to be a work of the Spirit in the life of believers for us to prefer what God wants. Okay, so the that by is essential to the argument. The that by is the work of the Spirit. Okay, so if some of you, and I know many of you were, I got emails and texts that week four was a challenge. Week four was a challenge to um, continue to read the word, to continue to stimulate conversations in our home, to continue to talk about the content of the gospel. If that's the case, amazing. You're on the right track. And there's many of you that are doing that on a daily basis. That's amazing as well. This is the progression of that. Okay, so that's the that by. The second part of the phrase is that you may discern. Testing. Okay, that by testing you may discern. Now this, this is a troubling, uh, not troubling in that it's troubling to your spirit, but it's troubling to know and to understand what Paul is actually arguing here. Okay, so there are many different translations of our scriptures, and this word in the Greek is translated differently in so many of them. Okay, so the Greek word is dokamadso, okay, and it's used 17 times in the New Testament, and of those usages, 15 come from Paul. Okay, so if you read all 15 of those usages of Paul, he uses them in like vastly different ways. Okay, so when he's talking about um, the, uh, how, to, how to choose elders and to see if they're worthy to serve as elders, the word that he uses, test them. Test an elder. And the idea is to test them to see what they're actually comprised of. Test them to see if they meet the criteria. That's dokamadzo. But in Romans 14, he also uses the word when he's talking about um, what you approve of, meaning ultimately that which you do. That's dokamadzo as well. So you have this testing aspect and you have this approval aspect. This I'm approving of something, meaning that I'm actually, I approve it and so I do it. So you have this testing, and you have this approval so that you do it. So our modern translations have a hard time with this because the word testing in our ESV versions, if that's what you're using, isn't its own standalone word. Dokamadso in the ESV is both testing and discerning. It's the same word, but they're using it 
to try to, they're using two words to try to convey a principle. And so it's really difficult to understand what that means. See, the NIV says, then you will be able to test and approve. The New American Standard says, so that you may prove, which seems a little bit different. And the New Revised Standard and the Christian Standard Bible say, so that you may discern. There's no testing in that version. In the, in the New American Standard, there's no discernment. It's just so that you might prove. And so what are we supposed to make of this? Right? And so I spent a lot of time uh, over the past five weeks ago and this week really meditating on like, Lord, what, is, what does this mean? Because this is, this is critical. If this is the purpose statement of Paul's argument, the purpose of the transformed mind is these things. We got to get this right. Okay? So I read all 15 usages of Paul. Then I read through Romans over and over again to get the sense of the context. And here's what I think Paul means. With renewed minds, we are transformed from people who live according to our own wills and according to our own desires into people who can both discover the will of God and prefer doing his will more than our own. Okay, I'll say that again. With renewed minds, we are transformed from people who live according to our own wills and desires into people who can both discover the will of God and prefer doing his will more than our own. So the idea of test and discern might be better understood as discover with the intent to do. Discover the will of God with the intent to do. Okay, think about this. Think about someone who tests gold. Think about somebody who tests the purity of gold. What they're doing is they're testing it to see what it's actually made of, right? They are examining. They're trying to prove it. They're trying to scrutinize it. They're trying to discover what it actually is. Is it 14 carat? Is it 18 carat? How much purity does it have? That's the idea of testing, right? And once, once it's been tested, once it has been discovered that it is actually gold and it's pure gold, then it's also approving that that's a really good thing. That's, that's how I understand this word to be used, okay? Now, there are many commentaries as well, and most of them agree with that. So this is not Adam Barngraf's version. This is also um, looking at the tradition of what the church has taught. And moreover, this is the understanding that people have landed on, that this idea of the, the, the transformed mind, what it is producing in the believer is the ability and the purpose of discovering what God wants you to do and the intent of actually doing it. So this is an absolute reversal of the problem of Romans one twenty eight. Romans one twenty eight, if you remember, says that each and every one of us, we all willingly chose to reject God. And because we rejected God, our minds were broken. The Bible says debased, which basically means worthless. Our thinking was worthless. Our minds became darkened and worthless. And in that state, who can choose God? Who can prefer God's will? Well, no one can. So here's the reversal. God did what you and I could never do for ourselves in sending Jesus and we now have the ability through the Spirit of God to reorient our minds around that which is ultimately really true. Our minds can literally be changed by the Spirit of God. Read Romans 7, 6, or here, I should say. I'll read it. You hear it. Romans 7, 6 says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Serving in the new way of the Spirit. Well, what does serving in the new way of the Spirit look like? Our text today is a perfect example of that. We understand and agree with what God wants from us with a view of putting it, in into, putting it into practice. That's what serving in the new way of the Spirit is. Romans 8, 38, verses 3 and 4 say it this way. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the, uh, who walk, sorry, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, right? 
So here in this example of Romans 8, we have Jesus doing what we couldn't do, taking on the likeness of human flesh, but now we as believers are walking in accordance with the Spirit, and our walking in accordance with, with the Spirit is doing what for us? It's enabling us to be able to keep the righteous requirements of the law. Something that we weren't able to do in our own strength now becomes possible by the Spirit of God. So they're serving in the new way of the Spirit in Romans chapter 7. And then we have this keeping in accordance or walking with the Spirit of God. So it causes us to say that only a Spirit-filled believer can ultimately prefer the will of God and accept it with joy. Only a Spirit-filled believer can ultimately prefer the will of God and accept it with joy. So if you remember week four, our minds are renewed through the gospel. We need constant exposure to it. So if we're at a place in our life in which the will of God for us isn't a joyful thing, what we need to do is come back to the gospel. Right, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2 say this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So here's the idea. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you read 1 Corinthians, you know Paul adds a lot of things about behavior and conduct in between chapter 1 and 15. He, he has a lot of bones to pick with how the church is handling things. He talks about sexual immorality. He's got all sorts of manner of things that he's telling them like, hey, you're not doing this correctly. And then what he says in 15 is, oh, and by the way, all of that, all of that behavior stuff, all of that serving, all of that finds its ultimate um, power and the ultimate goal in the gospel. So he says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospels I preached, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. So the gospel was received. They're currently standing in it, and it's through which they are being saved. So there was, a, there was a receiving, there's a current, present, I'm standing in the gospel now, and there's a, if you are being saved, it's through the gospel that you're being saved. So church, we never graduate from the gospel. We never graduate from the gospel onto other things. The gospel is the sole content by which we gather together as a church. The reason we meet weekly is to remind ourselves of the gospel. The reason we meet in small groups and the reason we have Bible studies and the reason we um, call people on the phone and tell them about the hope we have in Christ is to remind ourselves of the gospel. We never graduate from it. There isn't ever a time where you don't need the gospel for your empowerment as a believer. There's never a time. That's the first part. That's that by testing you may discern. That by testing you may discern. The next is what is the will of God? By the way, I have another half page of notes written on that first one, but I've decided to cut you a break. I'm a little, I'm a little excited today. I'm excited to be back, and I wrote a little too much, so I just, I just jammed that one right there, and that's okay. Let's move on to the second one. The second phrase is, what is the will of God? Okay? So we've argued that the purpose of the renewed mind is that we can discover and prefer the will of God with the intention of putting it into practice. So now we need to figure out, what does Paul actually mean by the will of God? Okay, so if the purpose statement is that we can discover it and do it, then we must need to know what the will of God is. Now, earlier... When I asked you, if you knew what the will of God is for your life, would you do it? If, if I would have asked you to raise your hand, most of you probably would have said yes, I think. I, probably it would have been 100%. So that's what we're going to look at right now. What, what does Paul actually mean by the will of God? And in order to help us understand this, I want to use uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29 as sort of a launching point for my argument. And here's what Deuteronomy 29, 29 says. The secret things... Belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. 
Now, this is a verse that the Romans boys have been using this whole, this whole year. The Romans boys is a group of young adults that got together and started reading Romans. And this is the very first week we introduced Deuteronomy 29, 29, knowing that we were going to come across some theological principles that we really can't answer perfectly. And what we said is, hey, if it depends on, like, God doing it, like, how does predestination work? We have some ideas, but we don't really know. We used Deuteronomy 29, 29, and we'd look at each other, and we'd, be, we'd have a little argument, at, not an argument, some discussion, and we'd talk to each other, and we'd say, Deuteronomy 29, 29, slap a high five and move on our way. If God hasn't revealed it to us, it's not for us. But the things that he has revealed are for us. Okay, and so what I want to submit to you is there are two wills of God in the scripture. There is the secret will of God, and there is the revealed will of God. Okay, now, historically, the church would have used these terms, the sovereign will of God and the permissive will of God. The sovereign will of God being that which belongs to him. It's his will. Only he knows it. And the permissive will of God being that which he wills for you and I and wills for his people to do, but ultimately which we can choose not to do. Okay, so I know that sounds a little confusing, but let's use Deuteronomy 29, 29. We're going to say secret and revealed. Okay, but know that if in your mind you're like, what is he talking about? I'm talking about the sovereign and the permissive will of God. And they're different. So what, what is Paul saying? What can we know? What will of God are we allowed to know? Well, here's the examples. I'm going to give you some examples of the secret will of God. Isaiah 46, verse 9b through 11. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of counsel from afar. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Here's an example of the sovereign will of God. Does it depend on you or I for him to accomplish it? It doesn't. The only person needed is God. He says, I have a purpose. I'm going to do it. I declared it from ancient times. And if I declared it from ancient times, no one's going to stop it. That's an example of the sovereign will of God or the secret will of God. Here's another one from Ephesians 1, 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accordance to the counsel of his will. Okay, another example, Daniel 4, 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So this is, this is a picture of a strong God, a God who needs nothing from you or I, a God who simply desires for something to happen, and it happens. Okay, this is the secret will of God, and the reason we call it the secret will of God is we aren't really ever in the scriptures privy to what this is. Like God doesn't say, hey, guess what? In 30 years, here's what I'm going to do in Fairfield, California. So by 2050, here's what's going to happen. It doesn't happen. Does God have a plan for Fairfield by 2050? You better believe it. And whatever he's planned, you or I or any evil, any evil force of the world could not with all their efforts ever stop it. That's the secret will of God. But there's a revealed will of God also in the scriptures. And these are not only the commands uh, explicit commands, but also the moral implications of the gospel all throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. And there's more examples than what I'm going to give you here, but I'm giving you uh, three examples that explicitly say this is the will of God. Okay, so 
it doesn't mean that if you don't read this is the will of God in front of something in the scripture, that it doesn't mean it's his will. That's not what that means. I'm just giving you an example of these things are ironclad. You can take it to the bank. This is the will of God for your life. Okay, so earlier I said, would you do God's will? You're like, I can't wait to do it. Well, I'm going to give you three, three things here that God says are absolutely his will. The first comes from 1 Thessalonians 4.3. And it says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification means you're being set apart. Your holiness. This is the will of God. He wants you to be set apart. He wants you to be different as a believer. But then right after that, see this, this is connected by a, a colon, right? It says, it says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, colon, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And it goes on to list all of these things. And in the end, in verse, verse 8, it says, therefore... Whoever disregards this, this teaching, whoever disregards this will of God, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So let me ask a question. It is the will of God for you and for I to be set apart, to be holy, to use our body in a manner that is right for believers. And what God says is, don't participate in sexual immorality. That's God's will for your life. But can I ask a question? Have you always kept that? Can you say beyond a shadow of a doubt, I've never engaged in any sexual immorality at all? No, listen, this is not a judgment thing. I'm not, I'm not laying it out here. But what I'm saying is, when we talk about the will of God, this is an example of what's revealed. God has revealed for you a sexual ethic that is meant for believers. If you are a believer, if you're going to take on the name of Jesus, this is how I want you to live. And if you don't follow it, you're not disregarding man, you're disregarding me. That's what he says. But there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples of Christians, preachers, evangelists, regular everyday people who read something like this and say, not for me. I'm going to do it anyways. But at the same time, they will say things like, God, what's your will for my life? What am I supposed to do next year? God's like, forget next year. Stop sleeping around. Like, can I tell you how many people have come to me and said, Adam, should I marry this girl? Man, and I say, are you, how are you guys doing physically? They're like, it's not great. And I'm like, pretty sure God wills that you don't marry her then, bro. Because if the fact is he doesn't want you doing this, why do you, even, why do you even care about his will in this? If you don't care about doing his revealed will, why do you care about his sovereign will coming through your life? So this is the secret will. Oh, sorry, this is the revealed will of God. It's a good thing for us, but we can or cannot follow it. It's, a, it's something that we can do or something that we can't do. Here's another one. This one will be less heavy, but don't blame me. God said that, not me. 1 Peter 2.15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And uh, by, by a show of hands, anybody here ever dealt with a foolish person? That's awesome. Man, do you have every single example of your life is doing good to them? Listen, I've come across some foolish people in my life. And can I tell you, it's not my gut instinct to do good to them. It's my gut instinct to tell them, here is how you are wrong, foolish person. Here are the ways in which you need to be better. Listen, you know how I know we all do this? Are you ever late for something? And you're driving your car and you get behind someone that's slow? And you're like, why aren't they driving so fast? Why can't they drive? And then someone stops at a yellow light instead of going through it. You're like, what are you doing? The idea is, it's right to me. What's right to me is that I need to get somewhere. And this person's being foolish. And so everyone needs to conform to what I want. This is mostly how we live. We are, we are probably amongst one of the most opinionated populations ever on record in, 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 in humanity. Well, on record because it actually is on record. I think we've always been that opinionated, but now it just lasts forever, right? So the thing that you said three years ago pops up in a memory, and you're like, eee, I really wish I wouldn't have said that. But here's the idea. Here's the principle. 
Do you always do good to those who are foolish? No, you don't. Last one. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The will of God in Christ Jesus for you today, believer, is to give thanks in all circumstances. You like masks? You all like COVID? You thankful for it? You know what? I know you're not. It doesn't matter. I'm, th- th- this is just an example. No, no judgment anywhere. Do you know how I know that? Because I'm not happy about it either. And I haven't handled it with thankfulness all the way, right? Or listen, when I'm doubled over in pain at night, throwing up into a toilet, I'm not like, thank you, this is the best. I'm not like that. I'm like, Lord, where have you gone? I'm suffering here. You don't seem to notice, right? This is, these are the examples. So there's two, two distinct wills of God in the scripture. That which is his own will, that which he ordains, and that always comes to pass. We call that the secret will of God. The other is his revealed will. His revealed will are the commands and the moral imperatives of the scriptures that we can actually obey, but that we have a choice. So what does Paul mean? What does Paul mean in this text? What does he mean that we can, we can discover it and prefer it? Well, I think it's obvious, but the idea is we're never going to know God's secret will. We're never going to know it. We're never going to be able to say with confidence, man, I prayed about if God wanted me to buy a Honda or a Kia, and um, I can't seem to figure that out. It's not wrong to pray for those things. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't bathe everything in prayer. But I think the issue is that when most people read this verse, they're excited about maybe getting a picture of their future or maybe that God will somehow give them some sort of inkling of a way that they should go when in reality what God is saying is my word is sufficient for you to know my character and my heart and how you should interact in the world. And if you want to know how you should act towards your neighbor, if you want to know how you should act towards your ex-spouse, if you want to know how you should act towards your future spouse, if you want to know how you should act in disappointment, if you want to know how you should act in suffering, you can come to the word of God and it will be revealed for you there. And believer, by the Spirit of God, you can not only discover what it is, but you can prefer it. You can actually want to do those things. So we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I think, that what Paul is saying is not that you can somehow know something that's going to happen in five years. That's not what the renewed mind ever promises you. What the renewed mind promises you, that's an interesting way to say that. The purpose of the renewed mind is so that in every situation, you might know the good you are ought to do and be empowered by the Spirit of God to do it. See, here, here's what's really cool about this, is that there are going to be things in your life tomorrow or maybe the next day or the day after that that you're not sure what to do. And as you look in the word of God, there's no clear answer. What this verse teaches us is that by the spirit of God, because we have a renewed mind, we can take the totality of the scriptures. We can take what he's taught us. We can take the example of Jesus. We can take his word and we can forge our way in the world without an absolute imperative in the scriptures. Here's an example. Philippians 2, 3 through 4. And this is practice, by the way. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So if I was going to put that verse into practice, and tomorrow I find myself in some tricky situation in which I'm dealing with some drama from a neighbor, or I'm, I'm dealing with something that I didn't want to deal with, I take a verse like this, And I can apply it to that situation. What's the will of God for my life in this really tricky situation? Well, it's that I don't act selfishly in it. I know that. 
right? So I might, not, I might not know explicitly how I'm supposed to act, but I do know the moral implications of the gospel. I do know what it looks like to love my neighbor. I do know that I'm not supposed to do anything out of selfish ambition. I'm not supposed to do anything out of vain conceit, but I'm supposed to view others as more significant than myself. So here's a question. When you come to a difficult passage, I mean, you know as you read it, you're meant to put it into practice. What's your natural response? Is it like me with my kids? Maybe. It all depends. Are you sure that still applies? What Romans 12 says is that our very preferences are shaped by the Spirit of God, bringing renewal to our thinking and desires. So if you find yourself lacking in desire today, then pray. Ask God to renew your mind and change your thinking. And let's remember, there's, there's basically a three-step model that Romans 12, 1 and 2 has taught us. And that's if you're struggling right now with something, the first step is always get back to mercy. Go back to the gospel. Read about the works of Jesus. Read about how that was applied to you through grace and grace alone. Saturate your heart in the mercy of God. Remind yourself that because of that mercy, it's the most logical thing in the world to give yourself back to him. And then ultimately, constantly saturate your life in the gospel and in the word and with other believers to stimulate your mind through the spirit of God. That's basically a three-step model to avoid any stagnation or to battle any stagnation in the Christian life. That's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 has taught us. I got two other small points here real fast, and I want to just get them really quickly. The first is, this is all well and good, but when does this break down? And here's the temptation for us. We understand that he does not allow us to know his secret will, but that breaks down in our lives for three reasons. One, pain and suffering come into our life. When pain and suffering come into our life, we are tempted to tell God that he's changed the rules. We're tempted to no longer do what he's revealed, and we're tempted to demand that God let us in on his secret will. You ever been through a true tragedy? Some of us in here have lost children. Some of us in here have lost spouses. Some of us in here have had terrible, terrible, terrible experiences in our lives. And the temptation with pain and suffering is instead of saying, your revealed will is good enough for me, God, is to say, I need to know why you're doing that, and you need to let me in on it, and until that time, I'm not going to give you my worship, I'm not going to give you my praise, I'm not going to give you all of me, because I need to be let in on the party. And this is a pitfall, and it's a temptation. The second is that we instead of trusting in the sovereignty of God, reassert our own personal sovereignty. That we assume that God's commands are too limiting. And so what we decide to do is expand those for ourselves because we say, there's grace after all. I don't, I don't have to follow through with this. And sort of the twin problem to this, and I'll call this problem number three, is we view God's will as restrictive or unnecessary. This is when problems come. This is when Romans, Romans 12, 1 and 2, we're not meant to battle those problems. That's not the kind of will that we are allowed to know. But when pain and suffering, when problems, when we want to reassert our own sovereignty come, we're going to be tempted to assume that God should let us in. But it's always, always enough for us to obey without knowing. Or to obey when it hurts. Here's an example of obeying God's will when it hurt. John 6. This is Jesus saying, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that anyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life 
and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the will of God for your life also in this room today. There was a time when you could not have chosen God. There is a time when you would not have chosen God. Ephesians 2 tells, you, tells us that by our own preference, we are, nat- we are natural lockstep with Satan, only carrying out the desires of the body. But God had a will for your life. And it was carried out by Jesus. And what was it? So that we might be able to see the glory of who Jesus actually is. And this rests only on mercy. This isn't something that you did. Romans 9, 15 and 16 say this. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So are you standing as a believer here? You're standing as a believer because God willed for you to be able to see the excellency of Jesus in the gospel. He opened your eyes, and you didn't choose that through your own human will or exertion, but it was God's mercy. And so that brings us right back to where we started in week one. We're back to mercy. And the whole thing starts over again. Do you see the pattern, church? Do you see how it works? Our efforts and desire to understand and prefer to do the revealed will of God in our lives only happen because God first willed us to see Jesus. And through the gospel, he willed that we would come to know real love, that we'd be rescued, we'd be renewed, and we'd be transformed by the Spirit so that we, you and I, can start living like his children right now. My prayer is that you will come back to these verses often. They will encourage your heart. And when you get to the end, you'll start back at the beginning. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful, God, that it is rock solid, that it is true, that we can know it. Father, my prayer for us as a church is that we would trust your revealed will for our lives. We would trust what you have given us in the word is sufficient for all of life. It's sufficient for everything that we need. It's sufficient for our obedience. And God, we pray that you would be glorified in our lives as we seek to obey you, motivated by grace, empowered by the Spirit, always informed by the gospel. We pray it in your name. Amen.